Bibi Fahodier, welcome to the African Liberation Media Podcast. Media solely focused on the liberation and empowerment of African people. I'm your host, Gullah Jack, aka Russell Swilly. Let's get to it. Bibi Fahodier, I'm here with Brother Amos, Brother Macaroo. This is the Black Liberation Media. We'll get into the heart of the matter. I'm struck by the fact that there's so much heinous crime taking place inside the African community. Suffice it to say, we know that all behavior is social. We also recognize that diseased relationships between groups result in diseased relationships within groups and diseased relationships within groups result in diseased relationships on the part of individual constituents or members of that group. Uh, years ago, we had a dynamic brother on the scene before he transitioned, Geronimo Pratt G. Jaga, who was framed by the Federal Bureau of Intimidation. You know, he espoused a very critical concept. Uh, he was saying that the difference between then and now was that the Panther, they were able to take the lumping brothers who in are headed for dire straits, and transform those brothers into revolutionaries who will support the community, protect the community. Fred Hampton also had that capability in Chicago on the verge of linking with the Blackstone Rangers who were later transformed into the L. Rookins. It would have been a powerful force. Uh, many have heard about Bunchy Carter, Study this brother, research on your own, Geronimo G. Jaga, Geronimo Pratt, Fred Hampton, Alprentis, Bunchy Carter. You know, why is it? You know, what existed back in those days that we don't have now? Well, you know, clearly we can start with the fact that organization, of course, imposes its ideology on the members of the organization. Of course, they were also able to satisfy tangible basic needs and of course during this process inculcate an ideology that was beneficial in terms of protecting the community as well as warding off the slaughter that was known to be meted out by the police. Uh, Dr. Ture uh, alerted us to the fact that when he was head of the Panther, at least on the East Coast, they had more guns than all of the gangs on the East Coast today. But the brothers were not killing each other. You know, what are we missing? What are we missing? Obviously, they had some variables. There were some factors uh, that these organizations developed or perhaps inherent in organizational structure that... Uh, would serve the purpose of at least eliminating many of the random acts of violence that we find today. This is the African Liberation Media with Brother Amos, Brother Macaroo, two scholars. Um, go ahead, brothers. Beaver for ODA. Last week we talked about Tanzania and President John Magafuli. We were talking about leadership good leadership on the African continent. And just this past week, it was reported 
that the Tanzanian president has halted or suspended a construction project, a $10 billion construction project by the Chinese in Bagamoyo. Uh, there was a port that was supposed to be built, and this is a part of a $900 billion Belt and Road Initiative brought on by China, uh, trans Transnational Infrastructure Building Program. So Baba Magafuli felt that the Chinese were trying to exploit Tanzania and exploit Africa financially through this deal. So I just want you to listen to some of the terms of this deal that the Chinese wanted. Um, once this port was built, they instructed the Tanzanians that no other port could be built from Tanga to Mwara South. So they wanted to have this one port where they pretty much controlled the trade, the travel, uh, and this was going to be uh, one of the biggest ports in East Africa. They were calling it the gateway to East Africa. They also wanted the Tanzanian government to guarantee them ownership of the port for 33 years. And with that, also at least for 99 years. Mm. So Baba Magafuli said that only a mad person would agree to those terms. Now we can see the capitalistic exploitation of the Chinese government, even though many people have stated in the past that, you know, we should work with the Chinese because they are coming in with money instead of force like the European. But they want to come in the same way that the IMF and the World Bank come in, and that's to put your country, to cripple your country through financial debt and, and exploitation and, and lack of ownership. Um, Baba Magafuli saw this, and so far this has been suspended. I don't know if there's going to be any ongoing negotiations that are going to take place, uh, if the terms of the deal are going to change for the project to be continued. But when you talk about trade and when you talk about travel into Africa, uh, you're talking about millions of dollars, billions of dollars of revenue that could potentially be made. So now we're going to see how the Chinese are going to respond. We know that, you know, when we look historically, when Europeans don't get their way financially, then their second option is to send the jackals in. And this is where they try to come in and, you know, overthrow your government or destabilize your government so that the leadership can be taken out and replaced with new leadership so that they can achieve the financial goals that they want to achieve within the country. So it's going to be interesting to watch how Tanzania deals with this situation and how China responds to this situation. They already are also in Kenya and they're building um, along the Kenya coast as well. So it's also going to be interesting to see what the surrounding countries of Tanzania do. Do, do they side with Tanzania and not allow the Chinese to exploit Africa? Or will they fold and submit to the financial terms of the Asians? Hmm. Brother, this sounds like uh, something I heard Doc say many years ago in dealing with the Europeans. Same old bone being tossed on a platter with nicety and complexity. Hmm. And of course, with you being a, 
a devotee of the thoughts and the philosophies of Brother John Henry Clark. I know the thought has already occurred to you. We ain't got no friends out here. That's right. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yeah, I guess the key to it is to, is how do the uh, the other countries that are have already signed on to this uh, Belt Road uh, Initiative? Um, I think there's a plans for a railway from the Congo that will run uh, through Rwanda in into Kenya to the port there. It maybe go may go to Mombasa. I'm not sure which port, but I think think that's probably where it would go. Um, the interesting thing is that, you know, the, the, the Chinese are, they, they're a different breed in terms of, in terms of the way they, they handle their, their imperialism. Um, we know, we know that, that under the Mwalimu Julius Nyeri, they uh, constructed the, uh, what the Tanzam Railroad to get um, uh, products out of Zambia to the coast because Zambia is landlocked. This was back during the 1970s. You know, Tanzania and as several countries in Southern Africa have have a long have long term relationships with the Chinese. Um, during the war for liberation in Zimbabwe. The uh, two liberation groups, the Zimbabwe African National Union, led by Robert Mugabe, and the Zimbabwe African People's Union, led by Joshua Nkomo, were supported by different factions. Zapu was supported by the Russians. Zanu was supported by the Chinese. The Chinese have a long, long-term relationship with um, with Zanu PF because because of that. So. I think uh, they have not. The Chinese have not shown a proclivity to to go the the route of the U.S. in terms of overthrows. They just seek uh, an, another business partner. Mm. So the question would be: Will uh, Paul Kagame? You know, which uh, Rwanda is landlocked, so they really wouldn't be be the one. But uh, what about Yuhuru uh, uh, Kenyatta in uh, in Kenya? That would be their next their next choice. Yeah, and in uh, 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 Museveni in uh, Uganda is also they've also signed on to this. So so right now, like in uh, in that part of Africa, they already they have Uganda, the Congo, the D, the DRC. Rwanda and Uganda, I mean, and, and Kenya and Tanzania were all part of this this belt uh, initiative. And I, I don't know if it goes if it goes into the interior, into Zimbabwe or not. But, you know, I would think that they would say, OK, uh, you know, Magafuli doesn't want to deal with us. OK, Uhuru Kenyatta, now here's your opportunity. So what so, you know, so what happens there in terms of. Do the brothers recognize the necessity for sovereignty? Do they recognize that necessity, and will they stand with Magafuli, or will they, you know, sell out 
as as has happened all too often in this neo-colonial era. I mean, we've, what, you know, 50 plus years now of this, uh, of neo-colonialism ravaging Africa. So, be interesting to see how this, how this plays out. And, and uh, Magafuli being the, being a very uh, intelligent brother, uh, could be playing both ends against the middle. He could be telling, saying, okay, well, look, uh, the Europeans would certainly like to <laughs> build this. The Russians would like to build it. You know, the Japanese might like to build it. Uh, the Indians might like to build it. So, I mean, so he has some he has some leverage there that uh, that he could use, or he could say, "Look, man, I build it myself." You know. So, so let's see, let's see, let's see how this plays out. I mean, the uh, based on everything I've seen so far. Uh, you know, with the exception of, I think, trying to get uh, Israel to set up an embassy in Dar es Salaam or what, the city that they're trying to move the capital to more in the, in the interior. I've seen er- nothing but positive things. So let's hope that this uh, that this works out uh, for the best, for the interests of African people, because that's that's really all that all that matters. What? How does this benefit the masses of African people? Because what has happened is that an elite has emerged and billionaires have been created like Cyril Ramaphosa, the president of Azania, and like, um, what's the Santos daughter name in Angola? There, I can't remember her name now, but you know, billion, these people have become billionaires off of the blood of African people, the mm-hmm. blood spilled by, you know, Chris Honey and Steve Biko and uh, the Sharpville Massacre and all of the brothers and sisters in uh, Soweto that, 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 that were killed, the, the, the enormous struggle waged by the warrior queen, mm. Winnie Mandela. I mean, so Cyril Ramaphosa and others become uh billionaires and uh dos santos the dos santos family in angola the leaders of mpla right that fought a battle one militarily on the on the on the battlefield defeated the portuguese and then the united states and uh, others uh nato powers decided that man we can't have the uh, mpla in charge so they started funding uh, the UNITA operation led by uh, uh, Jonah Savimbi. And uh, that threatened to destabilize the independence of Angola. And Fidel Castro sent in, you know, support, military support. So they won the battle on, they won on the battlefield, but it was the masses of people fighting on the battlefield. Right, they won the war. They, they sacrificed their blood, but they didn't sacrifice their blood for somebody to become a billionaire. Right, this is what Chris Honey, this is what Chris Honey, worried about. That's why he walked out of Codessa. Right, this is what the brilliant Fred Hampton, twenty-one years old, said in nineteen sixty-nine, that we have people now who want to become black capitalists, and before you know it, you'll have black imperialists. Okay. And lo and behold, with Barack Obama, we had a, a Negro imperialist. So 
this is this is the struggle. This is the struggle that uh, that Baba Magafuli is up against. And uh, like I said last week, these brothers like him are uh, so often isolated. See, yes, so sir. often isolated because, you know, I mean, I don't know if Samora Michelle would still be alive had he not been assassinated by the by the uh, the white supremacists of South Africa. But you need you need a support base. You know, Zimbabwe is weakened. Right. Zimbabwe is weakened. And, um, you know, if Mugabe had organized a, a transfer of power to someone other than his wife. You know, so so let 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 let's say you had people who carried on, like Magafuli seems to be carrying on in the tradition of the Mwalimu Julius Nyerere. Let's say you had some people in Mozambique that carried on in the in the tradition of Samora Michelle, and then people in Zimbabwe that carried on in the tradition of you know uh, Robert Mugabe before he you know had a fall that a lot a lot of people have. Then, 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 then you have that kind of unity, right? I mean, it's it's the way that they attacked when uh, in the nineteen sixties, uh, Nkrumah recognized, say, 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 we need to have, we need to show Africa, these African countries, a model. So they formed the Ghana, Guinea, Mali Union, three strong black leaders: Modibo Kieta of Mali, Ahmed Secretary of Guinea, and Kwame Nkrumah of Ghana. And so the Europeans looking at this, particularly the French, who were really concerned about what, what impact this would have on their continuing uh, exploitation of Africa economically through the CFA Franc. First, they overthrew Modibo Kieta. Then the United States got involved and overthrew Kwame Nkrumah. And that left Secretary Ray standing alone. And Secretary Ray managed to stand alone, you know, until he, until he passed away. Maybe uh, Baba Magafuli can do this, but it's just so much better when you have that kind of alliance around you. A strong Tanzania, a strong Mozambique, a strong Zimbabwe. You, 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 got, you got that kind of union there. And, and, so, and so now you're not, you're not isolated. And so, I mean, that's that that's what we're dealing with. I mean, I I don't know. We'd have to ask uh, Dr. Mumba Saraki how much confidence she has that in you in Uhuru Kenyatta. I mean, uh, I don't know if Rayla Odinga would have been any better. I don't know, but that's 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 where we are with that. Go ahead, bro. Yeah, just uh, <clears throat> statement of the ideological contrast between globalization austerity versus uh, scientific socialism uh, we saw this the other night this really frightened the European powers of the West the direction uh, that South Africa was taken and of course the uh, major contrast is between scientific socialism and austerity and that what we're talking about is the concentration of wealth capital at the top in many instances creating a buffer class twin with that is the disempowering of brothers and sisters at the bottom you know so uh you know the demands continue uh there's political unrest 
which I would imagine is continually exploited, you know, versus a radical transference of wealth, resources, ownership of the means of production and vital resources. You know, that's what it seems to boil down to in many instances. In fact, um, Mary Hoover, J. Edgar Hoover, in his mandate, uh, not only did he talk about stopping the rise of a black messiah who could unify and electrify the masses, but he went on to state that it was critically important uh, that the message be conveyed to black youth that if they succumb to nationalist ideologies, independence, ownership, utilization of resources to further the, indi the, the ends of indigenous people, that they would be neutralized. You can read into that, killed. Mm -hmm. So, you know, absolutely nothing has changed. Uh, you know, suffice it to say, uh, we need a anti-imperialist movement, brother. We need an anti-imperialist movement. You, I know you talk about uh, dealing with these uh, imperialist puppets as well, which is closely aligned with this type of capitalism that uh, is brutal, murderous. Yeah, yeah, and the thing, and the thing of it is, you know, we watched the uh, the documentary on Mama Winnie the other night, and uh, it was just what was what was so crystal clear is that. Uh, they really, really, really just did a job on uh, Nelson Mandela. Uh, but at the, at the same time, they were making sure that the true nationalist forces, socialist forces, or if you don't like socialism, something that has a more uh, egalitarian yeah, yeah. Uh, economic system. If you, I mean, if you don't like the word socialism or whatever, I, I, I just say humane. Brother. Yeah, just more humane. I mean, yeah. in terms. So you know, so you know, they uh, Robert Sabokwe, of course, you know, passed away. He died early. Died, uh, and uh, then you know they they kill they kill Bantu Stephen Biko. And brother, talk about his role. Uh, I am familiar with many of the cliches associated with Bantu Stephen Biko, but just you know, talk about his ideological underpinnings. Well, he's considered to be the founder of the Black Consciousness Movement, and and since you mentioned at the, in the beginning, uh, Geronimo Gijaga, uh Bunchy Carter and Fred Hampton. So Bantu Stephen Biko would be that kind of person in a Zania, the person who talked directly to the youth of, of, of a Zania. Okay. And he was considered to be, he was the lead, the person who they looked up to the young people, right? Because Mandela and these guys are like, first of all, they are in prison and they're older guys. And Chris Hani is operating out of Tanzania and Mozambique with the Spear of Nation, you know, doing uh, guerrilla warfare type activities. Uh, and so, and so, so he became, he, so he was that person that the youth could identify with. And they did the same thing to him. They did to, they arrested Geronimo they killed Bunchy and they killed Fred. 
So they killed Biko. Same thing. At the same time, they were running this this uh, campaign on the person who really, uh, after Chris Honey was assassinated, the person who really, the only hope South Africa had, in my opinion, after Chris Honey was associated, was Winnie Mandela. Right, and then they did they did a propaganda job on that sister, with Negroes like Tutu playing a prominent role. That uh, we saw the other night that was just thoroughly disgusting, but they knew for a fact that Winnie would have been elected deputy president and then president, and the whole direction of Azania would have been different. And so they had to do everything they could, first of all, to divide the family. And then to uh, this uh, character assassinate her. And uh, so th this is this is what happens. OK, and. Um, and unfortunately. Um, you know, the masses have not been. Organized at the level of you know, Shaka Zulu or City Wayu and the others, you know, who actually Shaka had to consolidate the Zulu nation so they would be in a position to fight the British. Right. So um so I mean that's 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 that you know that's that's what we're looking at in 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 instances uh we don't have enough, I think, uh decentralized leadership. So they can focus on just individuals, right? So that's why Che Guevara said one, two, three, a hundred Vietnams, <laughs> because they can't fight everywhere at once, right? Uh, so you need you need that kind of decentralized leadership. But um, you know that's who that's in my if for people who know if they want to relate Biko to somebody, it would be. It would be a Fred Hampton type of person, person who spoke directly to the youth. And. And see, you know, what you said in the beginning in terms of what we're dealing with today is that. Uh, quite frankly, these youth don't they don't see a Fred Hampton. I mean, you remember Fred was only 21. Bunchy was 26. But Bunchy, you know, had come out of prison. He'd become politicized in prison. You know, first through the Nation of Islam and then more Malcolm than Nation of Islam. Right? So the Panthers were the next link. Black Panther Party was the next link to Malcolm in his mind. They don't see that. Now, you know, now we do have, we do have some brothers, you know, like, Brother Gemini Boyd and Adrian Sundiata and others that have been through the system that they can talk to these guys. But, you know, we just haven't developed a kind of organizational type of thing that uh, they will give them the platform. And so um, these kids are just, uh, you know, we asked Gemini when he was on here, we said, how do you explain this? Because the social scientists are at a loss. The police, even if they care, are at a loss. And Jim and I said that these guys, a lot of these guys are the children of the new Jim Crow. Like right now they look, uh, 
they have a 16-year-old suspect they're trying to find that shot the pregnant sister right down the street from where you live. 16-year-old. And Jim and I said that these kids are like, they are children of men like him who got caught up in the war on drugs and wound up spending 10, 15, 20 years in jail and they weren't there. They weren't there when the kids were growing up. So, I mean, his explanation in my mind was as good as anything I've heard from any social scientist because these people are at a loss to explain. Now, we have our own theories about these guns being dumped in the community. We know that there's that uh, the that the unemployment rate among black youth is astronomical, not what the government reports. What the government reports isn't worth a hill of beans. So, uh, you know, that's where that's 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 where we are in terms of. You know, trying to trying to deal with these these major issues that are that are affecting us. Yes, uh, <clears throat> pretty comprehensive assessment, brother. Appreciative of it. Uh, you know, the problem is easy to identify, but then you know, what's the solution? Even if we had a, I guess, a theoretical approach significantly better than dealing with these issues in an ad hoc manner, which many of the social scientists are attempting to do unsuccessfully. I'm reminded of Brother Amos Wilson, though. You know, not only did he say that all behavior is social, but clearly you have to look at the social, political, economic context by which these behaviors emerge. You know, and then why do these problems persist over and over again? You know, ask himself rhetorically. And of course he gave an answer, you know, the the outcome is wrong simply because the orientation in dealing with these problems is wrong, which clearly facilitates the Europeans' ongoing attempt to do what they've always done, blame the family, demonize the family, attack the family, destroy the family without looking at, the, in biology in the seventh grade, we used to call the Petri dish, <laughs> <laughs> the culture that breeds uh, these viruses of madness, brother, that result in, you know, the tyranny of bullets, of brothers catching bullets, brothers catching bullets in a number of ways, brothers catching bullets via ignorant talk. Mm. Thus, we are here at the Black Liberation Media uh, to offer a contextualized approach in dealing with many of these issues, an alternative approach to what the sick mainstream media, corporate-controlled mainstream media has to offer. Mm. I want to talk about the... Uh, the 4th of July. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, in, but in a different context. The 4th of July just recently passed, and we know the history or the hypocrisy behind white people's independence here in the United Snakes of America. When you look at the capitalism, the billions and trillions of dollars that were made off of the blood and the sweat of our ancestors. Recently, 
on the 4th of July. It was an auction in London for a statue of a comedic African king, King Tutankhamun, that was auctioned off for $5.5 million. This is, you know, we talk about stolen African people, people who were kidnapped from the continent. But one of the things that we often don't focus on or are not connected to as we should be are the priceless artifacts and the priceless jewels that were stolen from the African continent that now exist in museums like the British Museum, like the Louvre Museum, like the Metropolitan Museum, making these the three biggest museums in the world. And many of the artifacts come right out of the Nile Valley. So you had a period of time where you had this ideology called Egyptology that was created, or this study called Egyptology that was created by Europeans as a means to go in and exploit and rape Africa, not only of its knowledge, but of its wealth and resources and historical artifacts, primarily of the ancient Kemetic people, or we would call today the ancient Egyptians. Many of us in the United States, many African-Americans in the United States, don't have a real connection with ancient Egypt, um, primarily due to the fact of the whitewashing that goes into, you know, the school system, the television, and pretty much what we've been taught growing up. We don't really look at the ancient Egyptians as our ancestors. But they are ancestors, and this has been proven by many of the African scholars who dedicated the majority of their life to providing us with that research. But even to this day, Europeans are still profiting off of artifacts that have been stolen. And the Egyptian government, um, which is primarily an Arabic government, mm. has surprisingly been fighting, fighting this, fighting for a lot of these artifacts to come back. Um, and really, that fight really should be stronger with, with us, us as African-Americans and also Africans on the continent who have a connection with Nile Valley history. Because it is a, it is a very important history where you talk about the foundation of civilizations all around the world. And I think that it's, it's, it's a continuing uh, hypocrisy, especially for it to take place on July 4th with the history behind July 4th and the billions of dollars that they made off of us physically here, still making millions and still exploiting us and our ancestors right now, just last week to this day. You, you know, brother, you made an earlier point uh, several weeks ago about this argument of people of few, Africans that live here, the argument being put forth that we were the first Americans. <laughs> it's just a shame that, you know, with all of this great history that we have, how much of our people here don't have a connection. And now you have this, you know, a disrespect of ancient comedic culture with you know, people disrespecting the word hotep or, 
you know, you calling people hotep in words or mm-hmm. anybody they feel is African centered, they'll say that you are, you know, you are hotepper or, or you are, <laughs> you know, homophobic. It's often used a lot by the LGBTQ community as a disrespectful term towards African centered thinkers and African history in general. And the reason why it's so disheartening is because you're only disempowering yourself. Hmm. When you talk about your own history to, to denigrate your own history. I remember, you know, John Henry Clark, when he said that, you know, African people were taught to not only denigrate their history, but then to turn around and to laugh at it. Right. Talk, talk, talk to the audience. Most of our audience are, are highly conscious people, rely on most, but for those who don't know, talk about the significance and the sacredness of the word HTP, which is, which is pronounced hotel, and why, why our people, as we walk the earth as free, proud, productive, prosperous, and powerful Africans for 3,000 years, why is that word the the word that they always greeted each other with? And and it's one of the first words that the African Senate scholars, when they began to study this history, that they identified with and said, This this is really significant for us to to grasp this word and to and to try to use it in the same context that our people use in the Navajo. Just talk to us about that. Well, when you look in the Meru Netra, which is the language of the ancient Africans. Uh, which is also the first language on the planet, the first written script on the planet. Hotep actually is the offering table. The symbol for Hotep is the offering table. So by saying the word Hotep, the ancient Africans, it was also, it, it was almost like they were, you know, offering themselves to you or, or satisfying you. It's no different than if you walk into somebody's house and they ask, you know, what can I offer you to drink? What can I offer you to eat? Because I know if I can satisfy you, then you'll be at peace. So this is where you get the rendition of peace behind Hotep because it was was an offering from me to you through the offering table. Or it could be an offering to the Netaru, which would be the different aspects or divine aspects of nature. So that's the history behind the word hotep. Nothing degenerate about hotep, but now it's been denigrated to a lower level word to make negative comments about people within the African community. Right, and The Root was one of the first organizations that really just uh, disparaged this you know, sacred and significant word. Right. Yeah. And also, uh, one of the first people that I heard do it as well was Tariq Nasheed. Wow. Mm. Well, I'm not, you know, a, a pimp is a pimp, so. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what can you say? I mean, that, and, 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 you know, as I said, I mean, you know, we're we talking about a period of time when African people walk the planet as free, proud, productive, prosperous, and powerful people. Models for us to emulate today. There's so there's so much about ancient Kemet. Obviously not perfect. Obviously, you know, like everything, there, there's strengths and weaknesses. But the strengths, the positives of ancient K- 
Kemet. You know, if you put it on the scales of Ma'at, would just totally outweigh, you know, the the weaknesses and whatnot. Because, I mean, anything that obviously lasts for as long as it stood is going, they're going to be periods of, um, of uh, you know, depression or, you know, of turmoil and whatever. Uh, that, but, and so, you know, I think really and truly the people who are using these terms are really just uh, white supremacist propagandists. I don't, I don't have any, I don't have any other way to describe them. Because you know, why would you, why would you take something from such a significant part of our history, perhaps the most significant part of our history, and denigrate it? You know, the way that it has, and. Um, you know, that's just, uh, you know, that's just what we're dealing with. Uh, one of the things that uh, we posted today was this uh, HBO documentary called True Justice. And uh, it's a story about uh, attorney brother Brian Stevenson and the Equal uh, Justice Institute down in uh, uh, Montgomery, you know, that has, you know, they produced the uh, memorial now to uh, chattel slavery and, and, and the, the period of lynching and whatnot. This brother just does a lot of good work. Um, and uh, Gullah Jack and I were watching a portion of it before we came over this evening, and I recommend that everybody watch this. Uh, just to see just the, the, the total... Uh, uh, corruption, if that's the proper word, Jack, of this. I, I, I can't call it a criminal justice system. It's, it's, it's a system of law enforcement because, in my opinion, they operate off the uh, principles of both Roger Tawney and J. Edgar Mary Hoover. And Tawney, of course, said that black people have no rights, which white people are bound to respect. And um, uh, J. Edgar Mary Hoover said that uh, justice is incidental to law and order. And a lot of the cases that uh, that they that we that we watched that Brian Stevenson has, you know, gone before the highest courts, you know, the Supreme Court of Alabama, the Supreme Court of the United States, various uh, U.S. circuit courts trying to save the lives of people where the evidence is so crystal clear that there has been, there was, you know, obvious bias, discrimination, uh, white supremacy and whatnot. And one of the cases that that uh, he ran, that, that you know, as he started his law career and started and, and, and decided that one of the things that he wanted to do with his career was to uh, try to exonerate people that he knew had been wrongfully uh, convicted and we were talking I guess the, I guess we got to this I can't remember now we were talking about uh, this study that has been done recently based on the number of people that this group has exonerated I think they've exonerated they've gotten I think it's it was at 156 people who have been wrongfully convicted and the total number of years these people have spent is 20,000 years Wrongfully, con wrongfully convicted people. Wrongfully convicted people have spent twenty thousand years in prison. Uh, uh, bro, could you give us a rough estimate of 
from what, 1619 to 19? No, they, they, these are people, that they, they're talking about people, these are cases that they've been dealing with in the last 20 years. In the last 20 years. <laughs> yeah, somewhere in that time. And this frame. is an organization down in Alabama. No, not that organization. Okay. No, there's another organization. We, we put it up on African Liberation Media, and uh, I'd have to go back and try to find it, uh, where we were talking about the wrongful convictions. But uh, Michelle Alexander, this is a very important case that uh, has become the standard uh, when there was crystal clear evidence that there was a bias in terms of how the death penalty is applied in this country. A clear bias, a clear bias based on race, then class, okay? And uh, they, they were seeing that, uh, you know, in states like Georgia where you might have uh, 27% of the population is African-American, 75% of the people executed people of African descent. And, and one of the cases that came out of there was the case of uh, McCleskey versus Kemp. Now, Michelle Alexander deals with this. I th you know, I'm sure most people have read the New Jim Crow, but you might just want to pick the New Jim Crow up and, and, uh, and, and go back through it. And I'm just going to read just a little bit of what she said about this McCleskey case because it just shows you how even when they admit <laughs> that there's a bias, they don't change the law. And this man, was, this man was put to death. And she said, in 1987, when media hysteria regarding black drug crime was at fever pitch and the evening news was saturated with images of black criminals shackled in courtrooms, the Supreme Court ruled in McCleskey versus Kemp that racial bias and sentencing, even if shown through creditable Statistical evidence could not be challenged under the 14th Amendment in the absence of clear evidence of conscious discriminatory intent. That's the word that you will always see. Intent. You have to prove mm. that they intended to discriminate. That's why the uh, and I and I don't know why I don't know why the Obama administration. Well, I do know why, but I just throw this out there. You got two black attorney generals and a black president, and they didn't challenge the ruling on which a lot of this is based. It's called um, Screws versus the United States. And if anybody would go to Makaru Speaks the blog, you can just 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 type in uh, Screws. And it, it should it should it should come up or just type in screws versus the United States. Uh, uh, it, it's a case about a, a brother that was lynched in uh, in Georgia in 1943. Uh, and so um, so let me just, just say this again. The Supreme Court ruled in McCleskey versus Kemp that racial bias and sentencing, even if shown through creditable Statistical evidence could not be challenged under the 14th Amendment in the absence of clear evidence of conscious discriminatory intent. On its face, the case appeared to be a straightforward challenge to Georgia's death penalty scheme. Once the court's opinion was released, however, it became clear that the case was about much more than the death penalty. The real issue at hand was whether and to what extent the Supreme Court could tolerate racial bias in the criminal justice system as a whole. The court's answer was that racial bias would be tolerated 
virtually to any degree so long as no one admitted to it. <laughs> Warren McCluskey was a black man facing the death penalty for killing a white police officer during an armed robbery in Georgia. Represented by the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund, McCluskey challenged his death sentence on the grounds that Georgia's death penalty scheme was infected with racial bias and thus violated the 14th and Eighth Amendments. In support of his claim, he offered an exhaustive study of more than 2,000 murder cases in Georgia. The study was known as the Balder Study, named after Professor David Balders, who was the lead author. The study found that the defendants charged with killing white victims received the death penalty 11 times more than defendants charged with killing black victims. Georgia prosecutors seemed largely to blame for the disparity. They sought the death penalty in 70% of the cases involving black defendants and white victims, but only 19% of the cases involving white defendants and black victims. So they saying that even where bias exists, you have to prove that the white supremacists intended to discriminate that there was there was intent and so i mean so this is really and truly i mean what makes it so very difficult and we how many how many of our brothers and sisters you know have been executed you know in the uh, death chambers of the united states based on this right but before, before the McCleskey case, they could say, well, it's just uh, circumstance, right? Or it's uh, anecdotal, <laughs> right? But now, now even, even with the evidence staring them in the face, they said you have to prove intent. Uh, in the Sam Hill, do you prove intent? It, vague. You know, it's see, I mean, and that was that was the case with the uh, with the with the screws case. You know, screws screws. The, the Supreme Court in that case admitted, say, yeah, he, yeah, they they killed the brother, Robert Bobby uh, Scott. Golly, can't remember his name right now. <laughs> Got so many names running through my mind. But anyway, they they admitted it, but they said you have to prove that he intended to do it. I mean, it's so absurd, man. It is so absurd. Murder, brother. <laughs> and by any other name. Uh, murder by any uh, by any other name. By yes, by by any other name. But anyway, I mean, I I would encourage uh, everyone to uh, to to watch this um, this documentary. Powerful. This, this on HBO. Uh, you know, this brother down in Montgomery, Alabama. Has, received numerous death threats uh but uh he perseveres and and, and, and carries on and and just is tremendous tremendous dedication uh to justice he he holds out hope a hope that i don't have but he holds out hope that the country will actually live you know, uh, that the that the system, that the law enforcement system in this country will actually operate off of 
the 14th Amendment, particularly its Equal Protection Clause, you know, which was uh, written by the radical Republicans, you know, passed by the radical Republicans. I mean, when they, you know, equal protection under the law, uh, it's the law of the land. It's the law of the land. Ha <laughs> ha. But 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 what do what 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 do what what do we always say? We always say the rule of law in this country is more about who rules than it is about justice. Yes, sir. Who rule? Who has power? Yes, sir. So I know we run out of time. So uh, I don't know if brother almost got anything else. We can go ahead and. What are we with in terms of time, man? Uh, we run out of time. Uh, but to end on a positive note, I wanted to touch on the story you posted. Close us out, brother. On African Liberation Media, showing the genius of the African mind, young teens in South Africa. There's an article on the BBC. We talked about how they built an airplane in only 10 days. Right. Um, this is what we talk about when we talk about uh, – the brilliance of African people and what we have accomplished, not only in history, but what we can accomplish now if Good we put point. our minds to it. Uh, so Tremendous story, tremendous story, and that's, it, why, that's it, why we posted it. You know, as an addendum, I won't like to assert that black minds have done more than black bodies, as you contemplate where Kawhi Leonard may sign. <laughs> This is the African Liberation Media of B.B. Fahodi. I'm here with Brother Amos and Brother Macaru. The struggle continues. B.B. Fahodi. Power or the lack of power. I want to repeat this. Power or the lack of power. If your education in this institution is not about gaining real power, not job, because your jobs do not represent power. Not getting elected, that does not represent power either. Uh, buying your houses and fine clothes does not represent power either. If it is not about real power, you are being miseducated and misled, and you will die educated and misled. If your study of black history is merely an exercise in feeling good about yourself, then you will die feeling good. The study of history then must be more than the pumping up of your self-esteem and the pumping up of your pride. Those things are important, but ultimately those things are not the means by which we will save ourselves as people in this world.